Hey, leaders. Welcome back to the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast. I am Brad Bominek, hosting on this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for jumping in. Thanks for uh, allowing us access to your ears and hopefully to your mind and your heart and your soul. You like that? So you're on the treadmill, you're in the car, on the commute, and we appreciate you tuning in. On this episode, Derwin Gray, Dr. Derwin Gray, the pastor, lead pastor, founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, which is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, mission-shaped community located in Indian land, South Carolina, which is just south of Charlotte, North Carolina. Derwin joins us. And Kurt Harlow is uh, the roving reporter, senior pastor of Bayside Church, along with Andrew McCourt and, of course, Ray Johnston. So Kurt Harlow sits down with Derwin on this episode. And just a bit more about Derwin, he's uh, got a new book out called The Good Life. He's, uh, he's written several books, and he also has a podcast called Marinate on That. So there are many ways that you can interact with Derwin. I'll give you the website and some of the ways to stay in touch with him after this conversation. But he is a thought leader. He obviously speaks and teaches. He's a pastor. He has a great book called The HD Leader, which is the high definition leader. Another book called Limitless Life and another book called Hero. So check out all the things he's doing. I'm a, I'm a fan of Derwin and all the work and the, the church is a great church in uh, in South Carolina. So let's jump in. Here we go. Kurt Harlow sitting down with Dr. Derwin Gray. Dr. Derwin, good to see you, my brother. I am so glad we were able to get this technology figured out. How you doing, my friend? Man, I am doing great, but there was no technology problem. It was a Derwin Gray problem. <laughs> I am in the midst of writing a, 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 a book. And the idea came, and then I just got one track mind. So please forgive me. Um, I got in the zone, and my assistant sent me a text like, uh, you're supposed to be on a Thrive conference right now, so please show me some grace. A brother was just focused, man. No worries. No problems at all. When that book comes out, we'll feel like we were part of the story there. I got to tell you, I'm so Please, you know, Ray does a lot of these interviews. Andrew does a lot of these. I had to push those brothers over and chip Andrew's tooth to get in here with you, Dr. Gray, because you're like my favorite combo of leader, man. You are the pastor of a great multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. You're an apologetics guy, which I love because I am too. You're an author and your book on happiness is just full, deep, Jesus-y goodness. And on top of that, you're an ex-NFL football player, NCAA. I don't know how in the world do you have the combo of all that. Tell us a little about your story, who you are, how all that came together. Yeah, well, the first thing is whenever I need to be encouraged, I'm going to look for you, bro, because, man, I, right, I, I mean, I got all kind of goosebumps. Like, who is this guy he's talking about? I've got to meet him. But uh, thank you so much. You, you, you know, you know, God is God has been incredibly gracious, and uh, I I know that's a churchy thing, but I really authentically believe that because, oh man, I grew up as a compulsive stutterer, so being a preacher teacher that was never something I ever wanted to do. Um, 
to get into college, to accept my football scholarship to Brigham Young, BYU, which is a Mormon school. And I'm going to share a little bit about, about that as well. Um, I scored the minimum score, uh, a 16 on the ACT. I literally had to take it three times and combine different aspects of the test to get the minimum score to get in. And today I have a doctorate. Um, I didn't like reading books. Now I write books. Um, and so when I say it's, it's, it's God's grace, it, it really is. So I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with, with me. My dad was 17. Both of them struggled with uh, brain health um, issues and substance abuse issues. And so my grandmother and granddad primarily raised me. My granddad worked hard, but emotionally disconnected. Um, at about age 13, coming from my environment, my context, it was like, I got to get out of here. And so I always loved football. But in middle school, that's when I understood that football could actually be a means to an end. And, and, and the end was get out of here. Uh, we didn't really go to church. And so the human heart is going to worship. And so football was my object of worship. It gave me the three things that everybody needs. It gave me affirmation, it gave me um, identity, and it gave me purpose. And so growing up in the state of Texas, played with a great high school football team, and I got a football scholarship to BYU, which is a Mormon school. And I grew up in a multi-ethnic environment, but going to BYU was a different kind of diversity. It was a it was uh, different shades of whiteness and Mormonness. And so first semester, I was like, what planet am I on? It was a whole different world. Second semester, I'm in the weight room and I noticed this girl lifting weights and uh, she asked me for a spot. A few weeks later, I see her on the basketball court. I ask her, can we go out? She says she has a boyfriend. I see her two weeks later, no boyfriend. We go out. That was 31 years ago. And we've been peas and carrots ever since. And she, like me, was an unbeliever at a Mormon school, too. She was valedictorian in high school, valedictorian in college. She was on the, uh, the track team. So we're high achievers. We're pursuing the American dream. We get married in college. I go to the NFL 1993 and I'm like, this is it. I made it. First year was mm. terrible. Second year was better. Third year, I'm a team captain. I'm in my groove. But at the end of that season, it was kind of like, okay, there's got to be more. And when I say mm. more, this is what I mean. Um, I always felt like, who would I be when I couldn't play in the NFL anymore? So NFL stands for not for long. So if I stopped doing what I was doing, my identity would be gone. Um, I couldn't forgive my dad. I couldn't forgive family issues. I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. But in God's grace, I had a teammate who every day after practice would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he would share Christ with teammates. And it was weird to me. So I asked my te teammates, what's up with the half-naked Black guy walking around talking about, do you know Jesus? <laughs> they said, don't pay no attention to him. That's the naked preacher. And so over a five-year period, uh, he asked me, did I know Christ? And over five years, I watched his life. I listened to his words. And on August 2nd, 1997, I came to faith in the small dorm room, fifth year in the NFL training camp. Uh, after lunchtime, I called my wife on the phone, said, I want to be more committed to you. I want to be committed to Jesus. 
And uh, I felt when I was born again, it was like the first time in my life that I knew that I was loved, not based on anything I could contribute. It wasn't based on how good I was in sports. It, it wasn't fighting for affirmation and fighting for love. I was long in here, son, I love you, but I thought I had to earn it. But at the cross, Jesus earned it for me. And so that's when I was born again. And my wife was born again about six months before me. So that was our fifth year in the NFL. Fast forward to year six, we get to Charlotte, I get injured, and all I can do for the whole year is read the Bible and rehab my knee. But as I'm reading the Bible, I'm getting a glimpse of the greatness of Jesus. I'm getting a glimpse of this beautiful multi-ethnic church that against all odds created this beloved community, as Dr. King says. And um, we abruptly retired from the NFL. I was like, I'm done. My age was like, what? I was like, yeah, you heard me. I'm done. He's like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. A few weeks later, I got invited to go somewhere to speak. And I argued with God. I cried and said, God, why would you send me? I'm a compulsive stutterer. Send someone else. I'll pray for them. I'll contribute for them to go. And I didn't hear a voice, but I sensed God saying, hey, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk, but you got to go to see this happen. And so I went, note cards were falling out of my pocket. I was weeping and crying the whole time. And my altar call was the worst in Christian history. I was like, dude, any of y'all want what happened to me to happen to you? And I was blubbering. And for I know it, hundreds of kids are standing up and the phone the next day starts to ring off the hook for people to ask me to come and speak. So eventually my wife, she has a gift of administration. She's a great discipler. Uh, we partnered and developed what's called One Heart at a Time Ministries. In the meantime, God like turned on my intellect. It was like, oh my gosh, I just wanted to read everything about him. And so I worked on my uh, MDiv with a concentration in apologetics from Dr. Norm Geisler, graduated magna cum laude. Um, and then I went on to get my doctorate. And in the meantime, we planted a church called Transformation Church, which is a multi-ethnic multi-generational mission-shaped community. And so my wife and I are like, uh, are, are like Pippin and Jordan. She's Jordan and I'm Pippin. <laughs> That's so good. There went, man, from San Antonio to South Carolina via BYU. That's God's story right there. Hey, um, let me, let me just say, we got to start with the, we got to start with the pivotal question because it's disruption and COVID and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we're at a year here. Um, how has this shutdown, lockdown pandemic and the cultural chaos and the racial tension, how's it changed your leadership? Talk to us. What adjustments have you had to make? What's the big lesson that you're learning in the midst of this season? Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that is such a beautiful question. And sometimes, um, you don't have really have time to think of it in that term because you're so desperate, uh, but desperation produces innovation. And so we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt um, when COVID partnered with the racial unrest, partnered with the political unrest, we knew that above all, that love had to be preeminent. And you're like, well, duh, but it's easier to say it than to actually do it. And so a part of loving yeah. meant um, we had to understand, and I've taught this for years at Transformation Church, this 
this leadership concept that I actually learned from my high school football coach is, is called sudden change. And sudden mm-hmm. change just meant this, that for those of us on defense, after we have stopped the opposing offense and our offense gets the ball back, if they lose the ball and give it back to the other team, instead of complaining, we say sudden change because that meant opportunity. And so what we talk to our churches, this is a sudden change. This is an opportunity for us. And so we had to go, we had to over communicate in creative ways. And I had to make sure that I was present to keep us located in the person of Jesus. Early on, it was very important for me to communicate, not just to our staff, but to our congregation, understand this. This is not the first global pandemic in the history of the church. Uh, I would share lots of examples, like my wife's late granddad was born in 1914. So what did he experience? He experienced World War I, Spanish flu, Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War. I mean, and so I had to ground people in this neither life nor death or anything can separate us from love of Christ. COVID does not stop the mission of Jesus. And then we had to bring people a clear focus because there's so much hysteria. There's so much partisanship. There's so much brokering for ideas that we had to tell the better story that Jesus has the best story. And it's not Mm. simply a story that he forgives our sins. It's a story that he forgives our sins, but gives us brothers and sisters of different colored skins. And we are our brothers and sisters keepers. So 2020 has probably been the most effective year of ministry in the history of Transformation Church. Desperation produces innovation. And so out of necessity, we develop what's called a Hulk Dealers Market, where we literally have a free grocery store where people in our neighborhood and community come to get food to eat. Uh, We've made hundreds of thousands of meals. Uh, We paid off $4 million in medical debt for people in the state of South Carolina. And so the way our leadership changed was to make sure that we're perpetually looking at the one who is unchanging and making adjustments, but then also being sensitive to the aspects of brain health, being sensitive to young parents with kids in public school. I mean, I couldn't imagine parenting kids who aren't going to school and trying to learn on a computer. I mean, for goodness sakes, my kids would bring schoolwork home when they're in eighth grade. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> I mean, I have no clue. So we had to make sure that care and concern and connection was relevant. And so we've had hundreds of people join the church. Uh, our small groups have grown. And so what I would say is the biggest thing is I feel like COVID, what COVID has done is I feel like um have you ever seen when kids are on a beach and they're building these sand castles, but as an adult, you know the wave and the tides is going to wash that away? I feel like yep. intuitive, we as American Christians and non-Christians, we're building our stuff on sand, knowing that a wave is going to come because we don't know that there's something better to build our lives on. And so I think what COVID did was knock down our sand castles and we're kind of left with 
oh, okay, I, I think I need to reconsider and learn afresh of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this type of world. That's so good, Darwin. So talk to me more about Transformation Church. You guys have the reputation of being truly diverse, not just race, definitely that, but age, status. Uh, I, I, I get, Most of the leaders I'm talking to are going, I want to move forward. I'm not sure. There's a few pitfalls here I want to avoid. Get real practical with this. I love the hope dealer concept. If I want to build my church in greater diversity, racially, ethnically, uh, um, multi-generationally, what are yeah. some of the practical stuff you guys have done in doing that hard work? Yeah. So um, the first thing is, um, is, is before you can lead a truly multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, you have to live a multi-ethnic, multi-generational life. So That's the first so thing that I say to pastors is this, is, is tell me about your dinner table. Tell me mm. about your relationships. Come on. Tell me about who do your children look up to if you're white that's not a professional athlete? Um, who are they learning from? Um, what strong females are in their lives um, as well? And so for my wife and I, as unbelievers, so we didn't grow up in a church. Y'all. I, I don't know if all y'all grew up in a church, but we grew up in the club. And so right. it was like, it was shocking to us that when we became Christians, it was like, well, you have to choose from basically churches of color or a white church, but you can't say white church because that's politically incorrect, right? But as non-Christians, we were like, but when we went to the club, we had the Asians up there. I mean, goodness gracious, the Koreans dance better than the black folks now. I mean, it's amazing. And, and I mean, you had Asian, you had white, you had black, you, you had an you had a kaleidoscope of people jamming to diversity of music. But yet, when you look at the church, you have the Dove Awards for the white Christian musicians, and you've got the mm. stellar awards for the black Christian musicians. You just have the Grammys. Why is it intuitively that for us as the church, our mechanism seems to produce um, division. And what I would say is we don't have a vision of what it actually means. And so the first practice, other than living it out, is there's this beautiful theological vision that motivates me. And the vision is mm. this, that God the Father made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a diverse family. And then Jesus comes along through Israel and through his life, death, resurrection, uh, this new Jew Gentile family's birth. Is it hard work? Yes. I mean, there is a devil. There are, there, I mean, we're not fully sanctified, so it's challenging. So, so living the life, having a vision for it theologically, and, and then your leadership team. And so new research, uh, I have a book that'll be out April 6th called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. And new research shows that for uh, uh, even within the multi-ethnic church movement, 90% of the pastors are white. So inherently, that's, that's, that's not a quote-unquote problem. The problem comes in 
that the lenses through which those pastors lead are limited by their life experiences. And that's why your leadership team has to be diverse. So the first hire that I made uh, 11 years ago was a 54-year-old white pastor. Now, was he qualified? Yes. But man, I was on my knees praying and fasting. So not only is he qualified, but as an older white man with experience that spoke to, we want our church not, not just to be young, cool, and hip. Like, no, a church is to be a family. Grandmamas, grandpas, crazy uncles and aunts and cousins and a diversity of age, right? And, and so it had to be reflected in our leadership. And, and this is important too. I had to train him how to be a preacher. Mm. Why is that important? Because the pulpit speaks to authority. And so what I tell a lot of my white pastor friends is you have to diversify your pulpit or people of color eventually aren't going to believe it. But also we have different experiences for a reason. As, as much as I love women, my sisters in Christ, it's not my place, nor will I do the best job of talking about workplace sexual pressure from a man. Hello. Right. Like there's <laughs> a gospel perspective that's communicated. So your leadership has to be legit. It can't just be a show. Like it has to be legit. And we see that throughout the Bible. And, and, and then message and music, right? Message and music. One of one of one of the things about being a minority is I've always had to learn the story of the majority. In order for me to navigate and to survive, I've had to know the dominant narrative of America and white culture. White people have not had to do that. And so for me as a minority. And then God has a sense of humor. He sent me to like Brigham Young. I mean, that's super white. <laughs> and, and here's what's cool, y'all. Brigham Young flew my wife and I out to spend two days giving 20 talks in two days to student athletes, administration and coaches about rooting out racism. So two non-Christian, I mean, two non-Mormons um, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Protestants at a Mormon school. But we kept the relationship, right? And, and, and so there's something about a minority that helps you see from different perspectives. Like I am very protective of women, not because they're weak. Like my wife threw the javelin in college. She's not weak. But because of the historical um, displacement, but also the historical reality that Jesus had women disciples, that the first person that Jesus told was the Messiah was a Samaritan woman. He's breaking down racial barriers. He's breaking down gender barriers. So messaging is, is important. And in, in that if I, as a pastor, didn't talk about me too, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I am, telling women in the congregation, the gospel doesn't fit what you've experienced. 
And there was a lot of times, particularly for white pastors who want to do a multi-ethnic church or who may not want to do multi-ethnic church, the racial chaos is like whatever. And then as a black pastor, I'm like, white pastors, you know, in World War II, we fought against Nazis and Nazism is making a rise in America. Like, like, like pulpits should have been ringing with gospel fire of the U.S. Capitol being invaded. Like the Confederate flag was in the U.S. Capitol. There were Jesus songs being played. People were praying with nooses and a lot of white pulpits were silent. Mm. Like it takes gospel courage, right? So messaging, music is important. So for us at Transformation Church, uh, practically with our music, um, we take more of a model of what is what is happening in the culture, right? Because unchurched Black people don't know what Black gospel is. And so right. we're trying to reach unchurched folks. And so our musical flavor, the best I can describe it is this. Uh, we sing songs that white folks know, but they but minorities can feel the percussion. They can feel the rhythm. We could take a Chris Tomlin song and you'll be like, what in the world just happened? Like, man, that had some rhythm to it, right? And one time right. we actually did country praise and worship. I'm not a big country fan. But I look back and the Holy Spirit said, well, you got people here that literally like country music. And if it exalts Christ, let's go. So those are some of the practical things. Um, but ultimately, um, you have to smoke what you're selling, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Starts with your life, goes to your leadership, that it has the impact, your message and the cultural setting of the music is so, so good. Uh, if that's an outline for the book, man, I'm buying the book. Um, I'm going to ask you about your other book in a minute. Cause I'm really, really curious about it, especially now in COVID. But before that, I got to ask you one more question about the church. You guys not only have the reputation of actually being multi-generational, multi-ethnic and, and, and actually getting that done, not aspirationally wanting to do it, but it's really happening at yes. the same time. You have a great reputation, uh, in terms of the community, in terms of being yeah. missional and outreach oriented. And, and, and I know you talked about being the hope dealer, but talk to the leader who wants his community to know his church cares more. He wants to live that out with credibility. How do we get better connected to our communities, serve our communities better? Yeah. So whew, I might preach just a little bit. All right, y'all. Cause this, oh, this, this, I can yeah, bring so, in an so, organ if you want me. <laughs> so we actually don't do an organ, right? <laughs> People are like you're black and I have an organ. No, but I mean, not like that, but, but, oh, okay. So, so the first thing is, is this oftentimes within the evangelical ethos is this, how can we take something from the community? Consumerism. We started with this statement here. If our community does not change because we exist. We should not be here. So 11 years ago, this is what I said to our congregation, our staff, it's in our DNA is this. How do we exist in such a way that our community is better because we're here? So the first thing that we did 
is we went to the public school starting in elementary and middle school and high school. And we walked in and said, how can we serve you? And they said, what do you want? No, we said, we don't want anything except to serve you. What do y'all need? They didn't trust us at first because most church planners who went before us came to the school saying, we want to use your school. We want to do our Bible studies. We, we want, we want, we want, we want. But the son of man came not to be served, but to be a servant and give his life away as a ransom. So now after 11 years, we have eight school partnerships where we've made, oh gosh, hundreds of thousands of backpack meals that we feed kids with who in our community were not eating. And one of the reasons why that mattered to me is because I went to a poor, junky, messed up school in the hood. I don't ever want to hear from anyone saying, hey, you know, everyone has an equal chance. No, that's not true. Everyone can equally work hard, but not everyone has an equal chance. And justice means I want to make the plan field as level as possible as a means of bearing witness to the grace of God. And so therefore, we heard there were poor kids that wasn't eating, so we began to feed them. Uh, we began to hear about a mental health crisis, and so we started a mental health ministry. Uh, we have tutoring programs. We helped launch a leadership academy within the public schools for boys and girls. Um, we have partnerships with the police department. We've won awards, and this is before uh, all the George Floyd stuff. Since 2015, we've been building relationships with the minority community and policing, why? Because I grew up in a hood. Like, I, I know what it's like to be stopped while driving black. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not aware of my blackness if I go to a store. Even walking in a neighborhood that I've lived in for 20 years, I don't go walking at night, guys. In the neighborhood I live in, I don't go mm -hmm. walking at night. It is always, I'm always, don't look suspicious, walk calmly. All those types of things. Listen to this. Listen to this. So we're getting our house remodeled. And I'm walking up. And one of the workmen is like, uh, who are you here looking for? I'm like, I live here. I bought the house. This is my house. Paid for. No mortgage. Mm. So, like, I'm constantly aware of that. Now, does that make me a victim? Nuh uh The day I said yes to Jesus he put a sign in my spiritual front yard that says no victims are here. However, that doesn't mean for us not to be aware and to bring others about, right? So, uh, yeah, so that's, so that's our heartbeat, right? And then one of, the, one of the things, too, is we've seen thousands of people come to faith. And so we don't think justice, evangelism, and discipleship are competing. We believe that they complete what it means to be the body of Christ. That's so good. Not competing, but but uh, completing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I, now you're taking a drink there. I don't want to stop you if you got more to go on this topic because you're killing it, my friend. <laughs> no. So so what I would say to the leader is really tap into the hurt of that community. Exegete that yeah, community. Like really mm. exegete the community. And, and um, within the church planning world, there's a desire. Let's go find 
where the new target is going to go because that fits the demographic we want to reach. And when we get them right. money, then, then we'll, you know, we'll give bottled water to the poor and we'll throw out our little charity in a paternalistic way. We have to move from beyond um, let's, let, let's, let's help the poor to no, no, I'm poor in spirit too. Mm. Um, these are my people too. Um, this is my hurt too. One of the ways that we know that we're growing as disciples of Jesus, the plight and pain of the other becomes our plight and our pain. There is this, there is this cruciform love, this holy angst, this holy hurt for a broken world that compels us to say, we want to be more than simply, hey, how do we help the poor? But before you know it, the poor are elders and pastors and leaders and ideas moving shakers as such. Um, so, yeah. Sounds a lot like the first church, man. Sounds like the early church. Uh, okay. Uh, blessed are the poor. I got to go there now. Um, I love this idea of talking about what real happiness is. I love this idea of writing a book on what Jesus meant by the good life, not fleeting happiness, but sustained happiness. Uh, I watched a couple interviews of yours talking about this and you, you just exploring yourself so timely in COVID because I think every false happiness has been stripped away from us. That's kind yeah. of an artificial uh, talk to me about the book. Give me the nugget. Let, 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 you know, tell me what, why do I need to master this material on, on, on being really happy? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. So, uh, the good life, what Jesus teaches about finding true happiness had to be the worst timing to launch a book in the history of all books. So it came out June, 2001 of 2020. 20, right in the midst of the global pandemic that we're still in, although there's signs that we're moving out of it. And it's a book on how to be happy. That, that just makes no sense. And, and so the origins of the book actually started in 2014. I was meeting with people, connecting with folks, believer, unbeliever, male, female, regardless of ethnicity, there was this, I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not happy no matter what, no matter how successful. And so what the conclusion I came to was this, is that people were looking for happiness basically in things and in accomplishments and in relationships. And so I thought, well, if we continue that, we're never going to be happy. So I thought, well, what does Jesus say about happiness? And as I did research, hiding in plain sight, in the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher ever preached, Jesus launches into the Beatitudes. And in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, he gives eight characteristics of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And he describes it with blessed, so like blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And the word blessed is this Greek word makros. And makros literally means happy, uh, a state of happiness. So, so happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs would be the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. And Jesus lays out, and it's like he's saying, listen, I have a happiness for you. As a, as a matter of fact, your birthright of being a citizen of my kingdom, a child of my father, a temple of the spirit, 
is happiness. But mm. it's not a happiness that you think. We typically think happiness is good things always happening to us. Whereas Jesus's version of happiness is this. I'm going to make you good for the world. Mm. Think about, about it. As Jesus goes throughout the Beatitudes, right? And he's laying out these characteristics. Let's, let's just pause for a moment. Blessed are the, or happy are the poor in spirit. In other words, the God reliant. Happier those who hearts hurt for what breaks God's heart. Happier the humble, right? Um, happier are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. Happy are the merciful. Happy are those who see God. Happy are the peace ma 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 makers. I mean, that's a beautiful life. That is a mm. beautiful life. And God is going, this is the life I've actually created you for. And the great thing about God's commands and demands He's the fulfillment to accomplishment. He is the power to get it done. Whatever he tells us to do, he gives us the power to see it through. And then, so when you go through feet, uh, 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 Matthew 5, 3 through 12, he gets to this crescendo, like a symphony, and he goes, you are salt and you are light. And then in verse 16, let your good works so shine that it will glorify your father in heaven. Well, what is the good works? You become a happy person. And what does happiness look like? Holiness. Happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. The happiness that God grants us by grace is a happiness that graciously makes us like him. So therefore, we're no longer dependent upon external circumstances to give us happiness because we have the eternal, internal reality of King Jesus molding us and shaping us. That's so good. That's so good, my friend. All right, I got a, I got a, a question occurred to me while you're talking about all that. I'm thinking about everything you said. It's so rich here. I've got to be incarnational in terms of my uh, goals of diversity. I got to have it at my kitchen sink all the way down to understanding the message and the music. I'm thinking right now about that young leader who's listening to this and he gets it. She gets it. It's obvious to them. You haven't said anything that they haven't figured out and it's all moving too slow for them. They're like, come on church. Uh, what you didn't say when the Capitol happened, what, you know, what would you say to that young leader, that next generation leader, what advice would you give them in this moment right now? Um, I would say be persistent be loving, be faithful, be consistent, is that mm. typically, typically for those under the yoke of oppression, it's never fast enough. For those who are not affected by it, just take your time. And that's, you know, that was the message to Dr. King in a Birmingham jail was take your time. Well, that's easy when you don't have to drink from colored only water fountains and you can go and vote and dogs aren't being unleashed upon you. And, you know, it wasn't until 1920 that women could vote, uh, you know, so, so, so what I would say in this entire conversation, and this is so important, we cannot let secular models of progress or conservatism hijack the kingdom of God. So, mm. When Jesus rose from the dead, new heavens, new earth didn't come automatically. 
The church is to be a foretaste of that which is to come. Um, complete and utter redemption will not come until the day that Jesus returns and makes all things right. But until that day, we can give glimpses, we can give pictures, we can give portraits. And so, yeah, sometimes it's going to seem like it's too slow. Sometimes it's going to seem like, um, um, no, we need to slow down. But I have to ask this question. What exactly is the goal? So case in point, um, mm. this uh, summer, I marched in a Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protest as a peaceful protest. And people go, are you for Black Lives Matter? I said, well, actually, I was marching not because of Black Lives Matter. We planted our church way before Black Lives Matter. Dr. King marched before Black Lives Matter. And before Dr. King had his dream, the King of Kings had a dream that every nation, tribe, and tongue would be surrounded by his throne. So I'm marching in this Black Lives Matter movement because they are affirming that Black lives have not mattered as much in this country, but they're not my impetus for love and justice, that's the territory and allegiance of King Jesus alone. We have to let our kids know that because if not, they're gonna get involved in secular movements or they're gonna go radically to the right as well with proud boys and white extremism and all these things. We have to give them a gospel vision that no, this matters to Jesus and understand this, understand this. Until Jesus returns, there's still going to be cries. But here's the good news. You are the answer to people's cries. Mm. So good. So good. All right. I got one last question. This is my best question. And uh, thank you so much, my brother, from your cultural understanding to the inspiration, to the example, Transformation Church. Uh, it's like I said at the beginning of this, man, you are a power combo of... Um, fearlessness and thoughtfulness that kind of go together. I don't know. I really love it. So Thank here's you. my last question. And you've been interviewed by a ton of people and, and, and you've been around a lot, a lot of great leaders. What question am I not smart enough to have asked you that you really want to answer? <laughs> In other words, what do you want to say to us that I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't smart enough to bring out of you? Yeah. So, so um, he, he, here's what I would like to leave us with is Please, please, please never separate discipleship from leadership. Mm. In the New Testament, the word disciple, which means student or apprentice, is used according to Dallas Willard 269 times. The word leader is one time for sure, maybe three times possibly. Oftentimes, mm. when we view leadership, we're viewing it from a Western um, secular perspective that leadership is, I'm telling you what to do. Whereas I would say, from a gospel perspective, leadership is embodying what you want others to become. And what we want to become is reflections of Jesus Christ. And a great example is walking in the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what a Christian leader looks like because they are a disciple. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to pick on ministry leaders that have uh, morally fallen, uh, but I have to address it because when we look at leaders who have morally fallen, they built these great, big, powerful, massive institutions and followings, but there was deep, deep darkness. And so when we look at the qualifications for an elder pastor, deacon, deaconess, whatever it may be, um, overwhelmingly, it deals with character. And what we say at Transformation Church is this, and, and I've drilled this into our staff, is you want your gifting always chasing your character. Because wow, if your character on. is chasing your gifting, you are a train mm. wreck waiting, waiting to happen. And a train wreck, the people on the train get hurt too, not just you. And so really making sure that our spiritual formation, us receiving um, the nutrients of God's grace and mercy in Christ and walking in the spirit and, and that we're soaking and saturating in scripture, not just for teaching, but for soul therapy, that we are in community. And please, please, please. And, and I know there are some incredibly gifted people that are watching um, never surround yourself with people who are impressed with you. Yeah, respect. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Bible says to honor everyone, I, I believe Romans 12, 10, right? So we're to mutually respect the image of God in each other, but we have to be careful that we don't allow our insecurities to be lifted up by our gifts and we create these environments where we have fans, we really have mm. to be careful because they won't tell us about our blind spots. They won't tell us about that. And that was one of the reasons why our other elders and pastors, like I'm, well, I was the youngest one until we raised up basically two more in their mid thirties. But for a while, I was the youngest one. And I thought it was important that I need people to speak into my life and to challenge me. Um, because if you have fans around, um, you're doomed to destruction. We need brothers and sisters who are willing to say, I am more loyal to Jesus to you. Therefore, I can speak the truth to you in love. That's so good. I think besides letting some of the political divides seep in, we've let a lot of the celebrity ethic of our culture get into the church too. Celebrity is toxic. Uh, that fans word is so good. Hey, uh, my friend, I didn't get to ask you everything I wanted to ask. I didn't even get into my personal subset, which is the Norman Geisler questions. I want to hear some of those. So I need you to promise me you're not done talking to people at Bayside and or at the Thrive and Thrive Network, man. We just love the investment you gave us today. It was tip of the iceberg. Uh, and we're going to invite you back. So you, you'll come back and talk some more to us, would you? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I apologize about costing y'all three minutes, man. I was, I was I lost in words. And um, I, I hear incredibly wonderful things about Bayside and what y'all, what you guys are doing. And I hope one, one day to be there physically amongst y'all. So thank you so much. It was an honor. 
I pray that I was a benefit. Whatever that book you're writing right now, just in the acknowledgments, I want you to put Thrive Conference in there somewhere. I acknowledge that I wasted three minutes of Thrive Conference in a moment of inspiration. My brother, seriously, great job. Inspirational, informational. Give me a lot to apply. And thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you to Derwin. And by the way, I mean, you may know this now, but he also played in the NFL. I sort of, I sort of buried the lead on that one. He played in the NFL. He was a professional football player, played for the Indianapolis Colts and also for uh, the Carolina Panthers, was a uh, defensive back. And so he's got some uh, he's got some stories as well from the NFL. And so much of his story and really his faith story started when he was in the NFL. So um, spent his time at BYU playing college football. So again, stay in touch with Derwin, derwinlgray.com, Derwin, D-E-R-W-I-N-L gray g-a-r-y dot com and then you can find him on uh, you know the different social media outlets i'll let you find those but thanks again to him for joining us and uh, we appreciate you being part of this episode hopefully that was helpful for you hopefully you took some notes hopefully you got some takeaways and that's what we want to make sure happens here on the ray johnson leadership podcast is that you're getting better as a leader that's our goal we want you to be healthy we want you to continue to grow and we also want you to have a thriving church. So on behalf of Ray and the entire team, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast.